0: The learning gap between advantaged and disadvantaged children is real, but there are ways to shrink it. Technology is,
1: is everywhere. <laughs> and if there was a way to imagine that, you know, state departments of education, which are mostly focused on schools, could reimagine themselves as state departments of learning, where they focused on learning in the home, how would they figure out how to get these tools to parents?
0: Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're exploring how to close the education gap that starts even before kindergarten. We'll hear about an experiment that aimed to increase parental reading time and children's literacy skills by giving technology to families and seeing how different methods of encouraging interaction worked or didn't. My name is Ariel Khalil.
1: I am the Daniel Levin Professor of Public Policy at the Harris School of Public Policy Studies at the University of Chicago. And I would have to say my favorite pie is a old-fashioned apple pie because it gives me wonderful memories of my mother's cooking
0: first, Ariel, I'd like to talk to you uh, a little bit about the literacy gap between advantaged and disadvantaged children. Uh, Let's define advantaged and disadvantaged first, and then if you could explain to us where that gap lies and at what point it begins. Right. So that's a really good question to ask about how we're defining
1: advantaged and disadvantaged because it's a pretty loose term. And I would say those words in particular don't have a strict definition. Mostly when we are looking at differences by family background, we are probably looking at comparing kids whose parents have a BA or college degree versus mostly everybody else who doesn't. It turns out that that is a important bright line in the skills development gap that we observe in children. So that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Other people look at um, income, family income, household income to define family advantaged. And here it's a little, there there are more data points to look at, but we will often look at say an income distribution and compare the top 20% to the bottom 20%. All that is to say there are many different ways of defining advantage. We could also think about family structure. There's no one right way, but in my work and in lots of other people's work, we just tend to use parental education uh, and compare, you know, the top, as I say, college educated to most other
0: people. So then when you look at this literacy gap between advantaged and disadvantaged, uh, where is that gap and when does it begin? So
1: the short answer is that it begins as soon as we can reliably measure it. So developmental psychologists, which is my own field, have reliable ways of measuring children's language skill, both the words that they can recognize and the words that they can produce. And you can do that pretty early in a child's life and as I say, almost as soon as we have a reliable measure, so this would be 18 months, I can say, around, you know, somewhere between around age two is when we can start to measure it. And and this is super important because it really points us to the home environment. So most kids that age have not been to formal schooling. Most kids that age have not been to preschool Um, And so we can attribute those gaps, at least conceptually or theoretically, to differences that are going on in the home environment, because what's going on in the home environment and how parents interact with their kids is a big input
0: into those early literacy skills. What are some common interventions that have been tried over time to close that gap? We'll get to you know your comparisons of those in a moment but can you describe some of those for us
1: yeah i mean so <clears throat> literacy skills arise from children's hearing words from children's being spoken to it's super important that kids need to be spoken to long before they themselves can reply um book reading is I think our most reliable input, for which we have really good evidence, that reading books to kids is a is a causal input into their literacy skills. So, I would say that interventions have aimed to move the needle on those things. Um, there's been a bunch of interventions that, for example, assume that the reason kids aren't being read to is because they don't have books. So there's interventions that give families books. Um, There's other interventions that aim to tell parents that reading is important, that talking to their kids is important. As I say, I I mentioned a moment ago that it's really important to talk to kids before they can reply or hold up their end of the conversation. And there's differences across families in the extent to which parents know that. So there's, as I say, information interventions that try to tell parents that. And then there's the set of interventions that that we do, which I'm gonna say are more behaviorally informed, which take the perspective that having books and knowing and wanting are not the major obstacles and that require a, a different set of, of tools.
0: All right. So you decided to look at the efficacy of some of those interventions and the effect that they had or did not have on children's literacy. I love the title of your research, nudging or nagging. It, mm-hmm. it, it reminds me of your Chicago colleague, Richard Thaler. Yes. Um, so we'll get to the study design in a moment, but what is the nudge here and what is the nag? Great, and we are absolutely inspired by
1: um, Richard Thaler's work, and take take a lot of inspiration from the work going on at the Center for Decision Research. Well, the the nudge is, uh, I would say, is coming from the the position that people want to do things, that they have the means to do things, they have the the materials or the time, and that there's some bottleneck that is standing in the way of their following through. So in our case, as I said, we had some pretty good evidence that actually economically disadvantaged families um, in Chicago had books. So we didn't think that an intervention that gave people books was necessarily the thing we needed to do. We had survey evidence that parents at least told us that they understood that the more they read books or talked to their child, the more ready would be their child for for kindergarten. So we didn't think that we needed to design an intervention that told parents that. Um, we didn't think we needed to tell parents that reading with your kid was fun because parents also told us that when they do that, they really enjoy it, that it's a special time of day snuggling at bedtime. So all these obvious solutions, we, after a lot of deep survey work, thought that wasn't where we needed to focus. Rather, we needed to think about a nudge, which is, what do you do when you have all those ingredients and still someone doesn't do something? Well, you might send them a reminder. Hey, there's this thing. You said you wanted to do it. I'm reminding you to do it. Or um,
0: setting a goal. I need that for many things.
1: (laughs) The thing is about the way we approach our work is that this is human behavior we're talking about. Like everybody needs this for everything and parenting is no different. That's how we think about parenting interventions. Parent decisions are decisions like you'd make in any other realm of life. And there's a intention action gap in lots of things. And the ways that parents interact with their children are, are just one more thing. So there's reminders, as I said, there might be something like goal setting, um, where I get you to think ahead. So, hey, you said you wanted to read. Let's set a goal. How many minutes do you want to read in the next two weeks? Okay, let's let's put that in our algorithm, then I can have a digital device that tells you two weeks hence, did you meet your goal? And I can congratulate you if you did so, or I can, you know, give you encouragement to keep going. So as you can see, this looks like any app you might have on your phone for any other behavior. And that's, we had some evidence from a prior study that those approaches worked really well for getting parents to read more. This study that we wanted to do not only wanted to see whether we got parents to read more, but whether that would in turn boost kids' literacy skills. So that was so we we replicated an earlier study, but expanded it to look actually at the impact on test scores.
0: All right. So so these were the things that you wanted to measure. Uh, Can you talk us through how you set up the experiment? We
1: generally recruit families. Uh, who are attending subsidized preschools in Chicago. When we want to find economically disadvantaged kids, this is where we go. Now, this is already, I can just say, a bit of a limitation on the external validity of our work, by which I mean how much you can generalize to all kids, because many low-income kids are not going to a subsidized preschool like Head Start or a preschool for all seat in Chicago. But it's really hard to find families. (laughs) And um, you need an institution where you can go and where there are families. And it's prohibitively expensive to go door by door knocking on (laughs) doors in neighborhoods and inviting families into your study. So just want to make sure that's clear. So at the moment, we are partnering with lots and lots of preschool programs across Chicago and, and the U.S. and school districts around the U.S. to partner to invite families to participate in our study. So we go to these preschools. We we set up a card table in the foyer and we, we say, hey, we're over here. We're the University of Chicago. We have an interesting project. Would you like to uh, volunteer to be a part of it if you do say yes? you'll be compensated for your time, and you'll be randomly assigned to um, one of several different programs. That's what we tell families. Of course, our programs, what we mean is a treatment group versus a control group, right? So we, we get all these families, are. And some are assigned to a control group who basically just go on with their life as usual. We interact with them a little bit, um, just sort of basic communication. What what does it mean to fill out a survey? And here's how you're gonna get your compensation for filling out the survey and so forth. But they they just go along without too much input from us. The treatment group, in contrast, gets a whole bunch of stuff. In this particular study, we had several different treatment groups. Everybody in each of these separate treatment groups got a tablet. They got lent a tablet that we got back at the end of the study. And the tablet had exactly one thing on it. It had a digital library that we built. So this was a super cool app that we built that was loaded with books. Books was a digital library. And we had over 200 books in Spanish and English. So we had one group to whom we just gave that tablet. And we said, this is a, here's a digital library. Um, There's lots of variety here. There's books with words and books without words and use it as much as you like. And the great merit of this digital library is that it captured in real time, objectively, how much families were using it. So this is critical to our study because You don't want to do a literacy intervention and then ask parents to tell you how much they read. You, Mm -hmm. you need a, you need a a real objective assessment. Okay. The second treatment group got the digital library plus these nudges to which I referred. So one group got this goal setting to which I referred. We, as I said, because we were recording the reading every week, we could ask them to set goals give them feedback on their goals and then reset the goal every week. Literally we moved the goal posts so that we could move <laughs> them along to achieve a higher and higher level of reading. And then the third group got a slightly different set of messages that were more just basic reminder messages, which is sort of like, remember to use the digital library, things like that. Okay. So that's how we do it. And then we followed, we, 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 let people go, and we we say, we'll be back. <laughs> and in this particular study, we meant to have a shorter treatment period, but Covid got in the way, and it ended up lasting eleven months.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: it was only supposed to be a three month study. It turned into an eleven month study uh, because research, everything was shut down. We were prohibited from seeing families, even everybody was at home. The preschools were all shut um but it turned out that because we'd given families this tablet with this digital library it was they were they could still use them so in fact we were we were not unhappy about that they just took um the the treatment home it was just that you know we couldn't see them for a bit longer than we had planned
0: so what happened with the group that received only the digital tablet and how did that compare with the one that added reminder texts first. Exactly. So just getting the tablet turned out to be
1: great. (laughs) Hmm. So it turns out people really seem to like the tablet. They used it a lot. And uh, let's just talk about reading amount for the moment. So just getting the tablet... um, I don't and and we're still trying to think about that like why is the tablet novel? So earlier in our conversation I told you that I didn't think lack of books was necessarily a barrier. It's possible I was a little wrong about that because when you give people 200 books loaded on this digital tablet that seems pretty appealing. It may be that this is more books than they would have at home, more variety of books or Or that just access or just access, or maybe that people there's something about reading together on a tablet that, um, that people like, we're, we're really, really working as a side bar here, which we can come back to on why do people like technology for learning, which we believe strongly is the case. Okay. But let me return. The digital tablet alone was a big hit. (laughs) When we sent the group who got the digital tablet plus reminders, we, we actually see lower amounts of reading. So it turns out that just reminding people, uh, Is not, does it, is annoying, possibly. So just (laughs) reminding people to do something for 11 months seems like a turnoff as far as we can tell from our, um, our data. It just that, that particular method of nudging was not a success, which is, Which is super interesting um, because in our prior work we had bundled a whole bunch of these things together, and we got positive treatment impacts on reading time. But apparently, it wasn't driven by the element that was simply doing the reminders.
0: Maybe the reminders weren't great. How about when they got the digital tablet and a goal setting text?
1: That was also good. There's going to be a caveat to this. There's going to be a little um, a wrinkle to this, but that treatment arm read more than the digital library alone. So goals, so that, that's not bad. Um, Goal setting is uh, apparently something that is, uh, you know, we can boost the time on task here. Okay. So we, um, that, that did work. They had significantly more reading minutes than
0: their peers who just had the tablet. All right. So there was this boost in reading time mm-hmm. um, with differing results for the reminder and the goal-setting text. Mm-hmm. What about the impact on literacy skills? So here's where it gets interesting. Let's just compare the tablet only
1: and the, um, the digital goal-setting group with a super control group whom we had who didn't get the tablet at all. So here, when we're looking at kids' growth over those 11 months in vocabulary skills, we can look both at the impact of just getting the tablet versus getting the tablet plus messaging versus not getting the tablet at all. Right. So let me say that relative to not getting the tablet at all, Both that tablet-only group and the tablet-plus-goal-setting message group had superior skills in child literacy. So fact one is getting that digital tablet seems to be powerful. And again, we're trying to understand more about why that is so. However, (laughs) the goal-setting kids, kids of goal-setting caregivers, had no higher vocabulary skills than the tablet alone despite having read more minutes hmm this is the that seems yeah, surprising yeah this is the nudging or nagging so this is sort of like hmm you know there's something about leading a horse to water and not being able right. to make it so we're trying to work with that metaphor to figure out what's <laughs> going on here and we had you know, some possibilities we could this is completely unexpected, by the way. But one of the things we could know, because the tablet is a digital device, is when it was in use. So we could see basically, you know, what days was it being used, what times ah, of the day okay. was it being used. Exactly. So so you know, it's like your phone, you it's got a timestamp on it. Um mm-hmm. so super interestingly, the goal setting group, as I said, They had achieved a greater number of minutes. Well, when during the day were those additional minutes accrued, it turns out that a big chunk of those extra minutes came from reading that was happening at like 10 at night. So you will remember how old these kids kids are. (laughs) exactly. You will remember that we're talking about preschool age kids. These kids are three to five. You usually don't think that a three to five year old is <laughs> going to be, up, be reading up at, at 10 o'clock. So we don't really have a, you know, what What we seem to have done is make people feel that they need to meet their goal and they are, you know, it's like, you're going to go run around the block 10 times at midnight to get your steps in. <laughs> So maybe parents are. Maybe
0: mom and dad are reading. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Who even knows who's reading? This thing is in use. I mean, I, you know, it could be that, um, yeah, that kids are staying up late just to get the reading in. In any case, there's a lot to be learned there it's really interesting to think about when these things are backfiring and sort of people want to meet these goals, but what lengths are they willing to go to meet the goals they set for themselves either because they don't want to disappoint themselves or they don't want to disappoint us. <laughs> so, you know, running around the block 10 times at eleven fifty-five PM to get your daily steps in is that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't, you know, really have any any negative spillovers to other people, but but we wouldn't think that these are the highest quality reading minutes that are going to produce the same increase in in literacy skill. So that's where the title came from: nudging or nagging, and just like super interesting things. You know, there are these canonical behavioral approaches that everyone is using to boost behavior, and I think it's just quite interesting to to understand when they work and
0: when they don't work and why. Is it possible to interpret any of this data through the lens of the pandemic because you were doing it in this weird time? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Do you look at how that might have affected all of this. Yeah,
1: that's a wonderful question. We don't. I mean, what we need to do is is do the study over, <laughs> in a mm, not yeah. in a non pandemic time. Of course, we can never really have a a non pandemic time that is as similar to the pandemic time in every respect except the pandemic.
0: Sure. So sure. that time. Has, well, you're even just going to have a different group. It's
1: a different group of people. There, I mean, everything is different, right? So uh, that question is not so readily answerable from a a new data collection point of view, but from a thinking point of view, I think there's a lot to think about there. It was just, um, you know, a terrible time for so many families Um, and, you know, uh, sort of trying to imagine what was going on in those homes and how was that COVID period different uh, is, is super important.
0: So, Ariel, if you were designing a way to increase literacy skills Mm -hmm. among disadvantaged children, uh, based on this research and some of the surprising findings, what would you recommend? What's the policy lesson here? I mean, I would just
1: figure out how we could get this kind of technology to all the families who could benefit from it.
0: Yeah, because it certainly seems like it was the basic... Just holding of that piece of digital library exactly that made the most difference. exactly
1: and why why is that that's we need to figure that out that's an interesting puzzle but I mean technology is is everywhere <laughs> and if there was a way to imagine that you know state departments of education which are mostly focused on schools could reimagine themselves as state departments of learning where they focused on learning in the home and how how would they figure out how to get these tools to parents it's it's not impossible we did that for the state of Illinois during the pandemic in fact <laughs> i mean we had a digital program that we designed that was delivered to families via text message the state the state of Illinois came to us during COVID and they said that they really needed our help because parents were at home, preschools were closed and they were very worried about what was going to be um happening to these kids and did we have anything that we could do to help push out some learning materials to these kids. And we were happy to respond and, and we did design something and we got a really um, a a good take up, not as high a take up as we want, and now we're with some philanthropic support, we are actually pushing this program out to families in Chicago and, and hopefully many more places. All right.
0: Ariel, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Tess. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics and part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on this show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Entitled, and it's about human rights co-hosted by lawyers and law school professors Claudia Flores and Tom Ginsberg. Entitled explores the stories around why rights matter and what's the matter with rights. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigeland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.